This is the Manga Mavericks podcast from AllComic.com, episode 135. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Lam Ramayasha, and today we are solving the case of what makes Moriarty the Patriot so good. That's why we're talking about a recently new manga series debuted in this month when an anime adaptation also until this month. Moriarty the Patriot, a new manga that is reimagining Sherlock Holmes' famous nemesis as a anti-hero and folk hero sorts. And we had a really great conversation on the series with a frequent guest, good friend of the show, Ace Crispin, letterer of Moriarty Patriot, and so many other great manga. We had a great conversation of the themes of the series and the characters and what makes it really stand out as an adaptation of the Sherlock Holmes mythos. So look forward to that conversation, but before we get to that, we first have to solve the case of why do we have all this news to cover? <laughs> yeah, let's uh let, let's let's get into that. Uh starting with once again another update on uh on a certain Mr. Matsuki. Uh why don't you take that away, Lum? Yes, Tatsuya Matsuki, writer of Act Dodge, who was arrested back in August for committing sexual assault on two minors, has been formally indicted for that second indecent act previously. They were only indicted, or they were only accused for the first act, but the prosecutor's office did not end up indicting Motsky for that, but they have indicted him for the second act that he committed on that same day. So basically, this means that he has been like formally charged of the crime. And so, yeah, the case is going to be moving forward from there, basically. So we'll have to see how the situation plays out. Mm hmm. Well, that's interesting. Uh, well, we'll definitely keep updating you guys on this story as it you know moves forward. But uh, I'm glad that uh, it seems like hopefully, you know, some justice will be served, it seems. Well, I mean, it's just an indictment so far, but like we have to see like what the actual consequences will be in the court. But yeah, I mean, at least like it seems like a criminal case will go forward. Mm -hmm. All right. But uh, I guess until we have more info on that, uh, we are going to move on to uh, some list news. And uh, I'm going to start off with the New York Times bestselling graphic books and manga list for September. And uh, out of the 15 spots on this list, we have uh, three manga titles listed. Uh, starting from the very bottom, we actually have Junji Ito's Venus in the Blind Spot at number 15. Uh, it's about time that uh, Junji Ito made it on this list. Uh, obviously, he's a he, he's not he's not just a big like horror manga name in the states now, but just a just a big name in manga in general. So I'm not too surprised that he'd be a big enough name to appear on you know uh, on the New York Times list in particular. Uh, so so that's nice to see. Uh, I'm sure this will not be the last time we see his work on here. Moving up on the list at number 12, we have uh, Volume 1 of Demon Slayer Kimetsu no Yaiba. Um, not, not Demon Slayer's first time on the list, and again, probably will not be the last. Uh, as well as with uh, My Hero Academia Volume 1, uh, which is at number 7 on the list. Um, 
seems to be uh i, I just noticed this on the list uh, the list like indicates like uh when it moves up a spot uh i don't remember what spot it was last time but uh i think it was like number f- i want to say eight or nine i think it was it still was in the number top 10. 11 okay i was definitely wrong on that front uh Nice to see that it moved up on the list. Uh, again, I I feel like Volume 1 of My Hero Academia is just going to be a mainstay on this list in particular, which again is not not too surprising. Um, and then that's, that's about it for all the manga on the list. Um, really, Junji Ito making his first debut on this list is kind of the only new thing about this list. Uh, Demon Slayer and My Hero Academia... Again, uh, no no strangers to the New York Times uh, graphic books and manga list. All right, and all, with all that out of the way, uh, we might as well just get to uh, the monthly book scan list for August. Basically, where My Hero Academia has basically, you know, made it its home for the past few years at this point, uh, and, and probably will for a long time to come, because at uh, number five on the list, uh, we have volume one ranking, with uh, volume two ranking at number six along with volume 24 which i believe is at the at the time of this recording the newest volume of my hero academia in english at number 8 at number 19 on the list we have volume 3 so that's about four volumes of my hero academia i think uh i want to say that's a that's like the lowest number of my hero academia volumes we had it uh, had, had on the list at one time yeah at least in a long time like I'm, I'm, I'm so used to my Hero Academia at this point, uh, taking like double that many spots on the list at any given time. Um, but again, it like my Hero Academia in terms of like other franchises represented on this list, like it still has like the strongest showing. So like on that front, nothing's really changed. Kind of catching up to it, I feel like is probably going to be uh, Demon Slayer Kimetsu no Yaiba. Uh, since volume 15, which I think is the newest volume to come out in English, uh, is ranking at number 7, with volume 1 ranking at number 12. Again, Demon Slayer, I think, out of any, like, new Shonen Jump title, if anything's gonna, uh, have the same kind of staying power as My Hero Academia, Demon Slayer is probably it. And then just to continue on with the list, uh, we have at number 10... Akira Himikawa's The Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess Volume 7. Uh, not much else to add there. Legend of Zelda is always guaranteed to sell. Or right, so originally, uh th- this this is the point where I was confused, right? Because I uh I had thought, like, huh, is this the same list we just covered uh last uh, last time we recorded about this? But no. Uh, vo- volume one of High Q making another showing on this list at number 13. Uh, which is really interesting. That that tells me that there are still a lot of people uh, possibly getting into high Q at this point, which is really nice to see. And then at number 14 on the list, we have, once again, uh, Junji Ito's Venus in the Blind Spot, once again, making a another showing on another list here. Uh, what, what, do we, what do we have to say about Junji Ito? He's popular. People love him. Uh, and then at the bottom here at number 20, we have Eichiro uh, Oda's One Piece Volume 94, uh, again, uh, another guaranteed spot on the list when a new volume of One Piece comes out, and uh, that's always nice to see. But uh, yeah, uh, I feel like there's not really much to say about this list. Uh, uh, f- f- full disclosure, uh, we we I we totally didn't record a segment where I was uh, almost uh, talking about the wrong list because uh, both this and uh, the previous month's list from July felt so similar to me. I feel like not much has really changed except for the addition of uh of uh, of Junji Ito's new work. So, 
uh, I don't know. Do you have anything else you want to add there, Lum? Or manga doesn't dominate uh, this month as it has in previous, since only half the list is manga. And yeah, we're seeing a noticeable reduction of MHA as well. Overall, this is also another showing of Wiz Media's domination. Like they occupy every spot in this top 20 so pretty much yeah i mean they're doing very very well in general we know the manga industry is doing actually quite well right now and sales are up across the board but this in particular is the publisher that seems to be benefiting the most Mm-hmm. And I mean, if 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 there's any other indication that Viz is dominating, uh, look no further than uh, ICV2's top manga franchises for spring 2020. Uh, we're just going to start at the bottom here. At number 10, we have One Piece. Uh, number 9, we have Legend of Zelda with uh, Naruto slash Boruto coming in at number 8. Uh, number 7 with uh, Tokyo Ghoul, which is really interesting because we... Really haven't seen too much of Tokyo Ghoul on the past few, like, uh, book scan lists, I feel like. And then, uh, number six, we have Dragon Ball with JoJo's Bizarre Adventure coming in at number five. Demon Slayer ranking at number four. Berserk from Dark Horse ranking at number three. With, uh, basically Junji Ito's works in general ranking at number two on the list. And My Hero Academia once again dominating at number one. Uh, n- not a lot of surprises here. Uh, basically, all of these we have seen on on the book scan list. Um, again, I f- I feel like out of all of them, Tokyo Ghoul has had like the least showing. If that makes any sense, uh, like I feel like I see that the least out of anything listed in the top ten here, which is really interesting. We may not see it on the book scan a lot, but Tokyo Ghoul as a franchise is a strong and steady seller. Tokyo Ghoul RA just finished its releases over here in April, so I'm sure a lot of fans now are enjoying the complete series out in print. So, yeah, I mean, it's just one of those franchises that remains popular. I think also notable is Demon Slayer occupying that number four spot, showing that sales of Demon Slayer have been quite, quite strong. Oh, yeah. And Junji Ito at number two is also very significant. I think that is uh, quite a big jump for Ito from the last time we saw this report of the top franchises. So, I mean, it's really incredible that... Ito's manga, which are these horror comics, are being so competitive with all these other shonen action franchises that otherwise dominate this top 10 franchises list. That's really cool, and it speaks to the unique appeal of his manga. Mm-hmm. I-, I can only imagine how well he's going to do, in particular, when uh, when that Uzumaki anime finally comes out next year. Yeah, hopefully it will encourage even more people to check out his work. Yeah, it. I I didn't really think about that until you just brought it up. That is really amazing that he's like right. He's literally ranked right under My Hero Academia. Like I'm, I'm, I'm sure he's, I, I he's hopefully bringing in a lot of money from the states. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I don't have anything else to say about uh, about this list. If you just want to move on to uh, some serialization news. Yeah. So to talk about one of these top ten franchises, Demon Slayer. We are indeed getting more Demon Slayer, even though the manga concluded earlier this year. We just had a spin-off chapter released from Viz that was is being released in Japan, accompanying the new movie. But we have an additional spin-off manga, a two-chapter spin-off manga that's going to be running on October 12th and the 17th in the 45th and 46th issues of Jump. 
called Kimetsu no Yaiba Demon Slayer Rengoku Gaiden. Yeah, basically, as the title suggests, it is going to be about Rengoku, which makes sense considering the Infinity Train film is premiering this month in theaters in Japan. So, some good tie-in promotion there. Unlike the other Rengoku one-shot that just came out, which was drawn by Katoge, this is going to be drawn by Ryoji Hirano. So, spin-off manga by different artists, but I believe they are the same artists that previously did that spin-off manga about... Oh, what's his name? The Water Hashira. Tomioka? Tomioka, yes. I believe so. Also, there they are. It is the Boze Beats, if you remember that series. Mm, yes, yes, Boze Beats. Um, I'm wondering if um, if Viz will pick this up at all. I imagine they did. I mean, they picked up that other one shot. This is running in Weekly Shonen Jump. I would not be surprised if we get the announcement. Heck, by the time you listen to this episode, maybe the announcement will have happened. I mean, this is coming out on the 12th after all. So by the time this podcast comes out, maybe the first chapter of this will already be out. And if so, I'm sure we'll include some sort of cut in here saying, yeah, indeed, you can read it now on the Jump app. But if not, maybe in the future they will uh, pick it up and translate it. I'm sure we will see this in some form translated because Demon Slayer is doing quite well. And it's quite popular. Mm-hmm. And and hey, if it does come out, we'll uh, we'll we'll probably mention it on the show here in the future if we have any thoughts. So, mm-hmm. by moving on, we've got like a string of mangaka launching new manga next year. Some very successful, popular mangaka. First, we've got a new series in the works from Kori Yamazaki. They are planning to launch a new manga next spring or summer. They are known for the Jumanguses Bride. We really only know just the plan of theirs to launch a new manga next year. So nothing too speculative. I wonder if this could mean, though, that Angel Jumanguses Bride may be trying to wrap up. I do not know. I would need to check in. But otherwise, it seems interesting that they are going to potentially be trying to do two series at the same time. I guess we will have to see how that is going to play out. But we can also look forward to a new manga from Yuki Kamatani this month that is debuted in in Kodansha's Morning 2 magazine on October 22nd. And the series is called... Here it lies at the end of the journey. It is going to be an introspective story that begins with a suicide filled with hope and despair, centered on an immoral man and a god who met a girl who wants to die. So this is going to be more in the realm of fantasy, but still dealing with some pretty heavy themes like you may have encountered in Kamatani's probably most famous series, uh, Our Dreams at Dusk, which we have covered already although we have not released that episode publicly but uh, we look forward to that coming pretty soon but yeah i mean kamatani is a fantastic artist and storyteller so i'm really excited for a new work of theirs really hope that this gets licensed and we can read it in the future i i would imagine seven seas in particular is probably going to be looking out for anything from kamatani at this point i I think our dreams at dusk did well for them. I'm I'm not entirely sure. I'm I'm sure it did pretty decently for them. It seemed like a pretty uh pretty popular title that everybody really wanted. So, yeah, I think so too. 
Next, we've got a new manga coming also this month from the writer of Kakegurui, Homura Kawamoto. They're teaming up with artist Makoto Shiozuka to launch this series in Comic Xenon. That'll come out on October 24th called Masha Tizen or, or translated The War of Witches. And the premise of this is that there's going to be 32 historical women, including Joan of Arc, Cleopatra, Tomoe, Goiza, Mary Antoinette. They're all going to compete uh, as prodigies called greedy witches who are going to kill each other to fill their own desires. So like a battle royale tournament of historical uh, women is sort of like fate, I guess. So yeah. Uh, that seems like kind of an interesting premise. The key art for this looks cool. I'm not sure which character this is supposed to represent. I guess maybe Joan of Arc based on the knight garb. But yeah, I think an interesting battle royale series from Kawamoto will be quite interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if Kakigurui is any indication, then yeah, it'll probably be at least a little crazy. <laughs> Yeah, they like intense high-stakes drama, for sure. Next, we're going to go into some series that are getting close to ending. Namely, we're going to start off with Twin Star Exorcist. That has officially announced from the author themselves, Yoshiaki Tsukino, that they are starting the final arc of the series in the magazine's next issue in November. The Simon Pub is being done through Viz, and if you've been keeping up with it, it's not too much of a surprise because there's been a lot of wrap-up stuff and big mysteries cleared. So the story is definitely primed for entering an end game. So I'm definitely curious to follow along with that and see the series through to the conclusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I need to start Twin Star Exorcist at some point. It's quite good, and also quite good is Beastars, which, by the time you're listening to this, probably will have already ended because Paro Itagaki announced last month that the series would be ending in the 46th issue of Weekly Shonen Champions. So, yeah, basically by the time you're listening to this, I think the final chapter will be out. From what I've heard from folks, they are kind of mixed on the fact that Beastars is ending in the way that it is ending. Some people have found it rushed, and so... I am curious to read the story through to the end when it is, you know, officially published, those remaining volumes of the series over here. So, yeah, I'm I'm curious to see, like, how we start to wrap up based on what I've been hearing about the way the story plays out and the how the wrap-up is going, but... It is definitely something to keep an eye on. Also worth mentioning is that it was recently announced that Beast Complex, the basically prototype prequel to Beast Stars, it is announced that next year it'll return for a mini serialization. So that's also interesting that Paro is still not necessarily done with the world of Beast Stars slash Beast Complex. So we might have some new one off stories to look forward to under the Beast Complex name next year. I wouldn't be surprised if she just kept doing stories in that universe for as long as she does manga. Like, she, I, I think she clearly loves spending time in that world, so. At least she really loves drawing anthropomorphic animals. Oh, yeah, so for sure. I think that is definitely her bread and butter, and we will continue to see her use those kind of characters. But yeah, hopefully Beastars ending is good, because I'm really looking forward to reading the rest of it when it ends, so. Mm-hmm. Another series that is ending this month is Hitomi Takano's My Boy. That'll be concluding in 
the 48th issue of Weekly Young Magazine on October 26th. I'm curious about this because I read the for early volumes of the series and it walked a very thin line of potentially going problematic direction, but <laughs> at the core, it was a compelling story between like two lonely people of different like ages kind of becoming surrogate family. So hopefully it goes for a more wholesome ending than a problematic ending. It was a series that, you know, I did like a lot of the story elements in the first two volumes that were like about the character villain and relationship of these two other two main protagonists. So I am curious to see how that plays out. This is a series that's being published over here by Vertical. So it's going to end potentially with its ninth volume. And there's six volumes out right now by Vertical. So yeah, not a terribly long series. So something I am going to catch up with at some point, And hopefully it does not pull an Asagi drop. <laughs> yeah, let's let's hope. Yeah, but uh, last to talk about this time is a little bit unfortunate, and it's news from Tower God Creator CEO that they are not going to be resuming the series in the foreseeable future because of some heavy stress that the serialization has had on the author. And if the decision changes, readers will be notified. It's not an indefinite hiatus, it's just more like of a break that the author needs because of, you know, overwork stress and stuff. But yeah, it is always sad when it seems like an author is hit with burnout, that they really need to just step away from their work for a period of time before they can get back to it. But we wish the best for CU and for them to take a very well-deserved rest and return to a series when they have re-energized their creative spirit. Mm-hmm. The, the timing of that really is a shame, not, not that I don't want them to get some much-deserved rest, but the timing of that is really unfortunate, considering, you know, Tower of God just had a, what I'm gonna say is a pretty, pretty successful anime adaptation that, like, probably, you know, got a lot of new fans into the series, too, so, yeah, ho ho hopefully there's still more of that series to come, but, uh, again, we, we we hope CU gets uh, as much rest as they possibly can get, so. Mm-hmm. But that about does it for our serialization news. This time, we're not going to do a full licensing roundup this time. Now that we kind of just pick and choose which licenses to talk about, we can wait a little bit just to accrue a bit more, and we also want to shave some time off of our news reporting for this episode, too. But we will mention, like, a few kind of immediate things that are out that you can check out. First off, there is some new stuff on Mangamo, if you want to go over that, Colton. Yeah, so uh, Mangamo, I, I think it's safe to say, is constantly adding stuff to their service, and they've been adding, uh, what I, I believe some of these are silo pubs. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I know one of them isn't, but uh, I guess uh, just to go over uh, them here real quick, the first of which we have Death Deus Hero of the Dead from Mori uh, Kotaro, uh, who I guess is... Um, is the artist responsible for the manga adaptation of Gurren Lagann, which is really interesting. Uh, I read some of that back when it was actually being released by Bandai and then unfortunately canceled because I think uh, Bandai went out of business or something. I forget the mm -hmm. entire, I, I forget the details, but I know it got canceled over here at one point, which is the same. I, I really like that adaptation, but uh 
I guess as far as Death Deus goes in particular, just to kind of read the description here, uh, in this post-apocalyptic action tale, humanity is plagued by the undead reversed, and no one can stand against them. No one except Xion Chan, a high school girl from another time, and she'll resurrect this rotten world with her maiden fist. So this already sounds like a lot of fun, fun little action-filled isekai-type story. Uh, definitely going to be checking that out. Uh, next up, we have My Evil Stepbrother from Tomu Shinonome. And so I guess apparently uh, this story in particular spans the genres of drama, high school, and real life, and tells the story of Satono, the lonely daughter of a mom who is always working. That's always sad. Uh, she's so afraid of being left alone, she self-isolates to prevent anyone from leaving her. Uh, when her mom suddenly remarries, she gains an older stepbrother, Ryo. Uh, who only wants to hang out with his friends, all Satano wants, is a family. But can this pair work out their differences? I guess we'll have to see, as uh, this sounds like a really sad story, and it's probably going to make me cry at least once. Yeah, self-isolating without a pandemic forcing you to? <laughs> that is very sad. Oh, yeah. And then, uh, I guess uh, the last title uh, that they got in this group here is uh, something that I guess is uh, pretty well known. Unfortunately, I can't say I've heard of the series myself. Uh, we have Eramentar uh, Gerard, Gerard. I hope I pronounced that right. Gerard, probably. It probably should be Eramentar Gerard, because it's a weird localization choice to render the title this way, because previously this series was known as Elemental Gallade mm, okay. in previous uh, releases by Tokyo Pop and Digital Manga. So I guess this is like a choice from the Japanese side to render it this way, even though like these aren't like words. <laughs> Regardless, this is basically a fairly big license rescue. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got the original series and the sequel series known as Flag of Blue Sky. And uh, I guess all 96 chapters of the original series and sequel series are uh, are available on the app now. And uh, yeah, it seems to be uh, a somewhat shonen action sci-fi type of story. Uh, during a routine raid, Sky Pirate... Uh, Kud Van Giroud, I can't pronounce any of these names. Uh, discovers a Ooh, most thank you. Discovers a most unusual bounty: Ren an Idel raid and a living weapon. When Ren is captured by Bizon, an evil Idel raid dealer, uh, Kud quickly realizes that Ren is even more uh prized than than he first thought. And that Ren's only chance of rescue lies with Code Kud. I'm doing such a great job. Uh, and I think the, it's supposed to be Kud, yeah. Yeah, uh, and the agents of Ark Isle. I did a very terrible job at that, but it sounds interesting. Yeah, and you can read it all on Mangamo. Yeah, I'm I'm all for Mangamo getting complete runs of stuff, and uh, I'm I'm also all for licensors rescuing stuff from uh, Tokyo Pop so that. You know, so that they're actually available. Uh, would be nice if somebody did that for uh, for GTO in particular, but uh, one, one miracle at a time. Uh, um, but yeah, uh, some some new stuff on Manga Mo. Uh, I think we'll probably talk about my evil stepbrother and uh, Death Deus on an upcoming episode. So uh, look forward to that. Yeah, 
But moving from one big shonen license rescue to another, we've got an update on Shaman King. And by the time you're listening to this, hopefully the full Shaman King manga will have been released on Comixology. And that was Kadansha's plan. That's what they announced that, like, as of October 6th, all of Shaman King will be on Comixology to read and purchase. And Shaman King Zero is going to follow on October 13th, Flowers on October 20th, Red Crimson on October 27th, and Superstar on December 8th. So, this is about, like, a two-month delay from when they said this had happened, but it seems like they got everything together for a proper debut this time, and I'm definitely excited to have Shaman King accessible again, and I know a lot of folks who are very excited to dig into Shaman King again, or read it for the first time. Mm-hmm. In my case, I'll be reading it for the first time. Uh, so I'm, I'm very, I'm very excited. I'm, I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad we didn't have to wait too long for, uh, uh, for an update on Shaman King. I was actually wondering if we were going to have to wait until like maybe early next year to see this, but, uh, that, that doesn't seem to be the case. So I'm, 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 I'm happy they, uh, they got everything together. So. Mm-hmm. And the graphic novels seem to still be on for, next spring as well just in time for the anime but also to speak about another delayed kadansha digital license tokyo tower replica girls returns is also finally out now after previously supposed to be coming out on december of last year now it it took until october 6th of this year uh, 10 whole months but it's out now so hey more kiko kashimura more tokyo tower replica girls it was a long wait, but I'm sure it was worth the wait. So definitely look forward to checking that out as well. All right. Uh, but I think that about does it for our short round of licensing news there. That indeed it does. So now let us head into some miscellaneous slash industry news. First, let's talk about the Javi Awards. The Javi Awards is, of course, the annual awards that out. That honors outstanding work in comics and sequential art, and they announced that the awards are going to be inducting the God Among Himself, Isama Tiska, into their Hall of Fame alongside American illustrator Jill Thompson and one of the four founders of African American Comics Collective, Milestone Media. So yeah, Tiska is being inducted into the Hall of Fame of the Harvey Awards. Definitely a very deserved accolade and honor, also well-deserved honor, is being given to Witch Hat Atelier, which is winning the Best Manga Award at the Harveys. And Witch Hat Atelier won out against H.P. Lovecraft's The Mountain of Madness, Yoshiara Tsuge's Man Without Talent, Motohagi's Poklan, and Kosuke Una's With the House Husband, but I think it's a very well-deserved victory because Witch Hat Atelier is indeed a beautiful and beautifully written manga. So, yeah, really, really nice to see both Tezuka and Witch Hat Atelier be given such a well-deserved awards. Tezuka definitely feels like some someone who who should have been inducted into the Hall of Fame like uh way earlier on but but it the, what what matters is that they've given him the honor now and he as as the god of manga uh you know he I'd say he definitely deserves it 
Yeah, it only took them over three decades to do this, <laughs> but, you know, better late than never. Uh, it's okay. All, all manga artists, especially all famous ones, will get their due at some point, so. Mm-hmm. Everyone gets their peanuts. But next, uh, yeah, wait, let's just jump into some other interesting milestones. Namely, Demon Slayer continuing to do very well for itself and now has a hundred copies of the franchise in circulation. This is not copies sold, this is just in circulation, but it's uh, quite a big number and uh, quite a big jump from only having 40 million in circulation in February and then 80 million as of July. So basically every couple of months when a new volume comes up, it's jumping another 20 million so by the end of the year i think it'll probably be in 120 to 140 million copies in circulation so very very impressive mm-hmm. yeah it's worth noting that uh demon slayer now that it's reached its milestone of 100 million copies in circulation has joined the ranks of such series as uh kochikame dragon ball jojo slam dunk one piece naruto and bleach so welcome welcome to the club demon slayer yeah, all the big hits. I mean, even MHA has not quite reached this level yet, it seems. So, I mean, that just speaks to what a phenomenon Demon Slayer is, in Japan especially. Uh, and then, uh, I guess just to speak about another milestone, one that's also pretty big in its own right. Uh, so, the original Akira manga from Katsuhiro Otomo has apparently reached its 100th printing, as announced by uh, Kodansha themselves. I believe uh, out of all of Kodansha's manga, uh, it is the first manga volume uh, in Kodansha's history to reach this particular milestone. Uh, it's it's taken from 1984 until now, so 36 years, but uh, we finally made it. We've we've had 100 printings of uh, of Akira of the of the first volume, I should say. I don't know if I made that clear. Uh, I mean that that's that's pretty impressive. Like I can't think of too many other. I don't know if there are really any other manga that have like ha- that have like had that. I mean, maybe maybe there are. And I just don't know. But uh, uh, again, I mean, for for Kod- for Kodansha in particular, that's pretty impressive. I would agree. Yeah, I mean, not every comic gets like a hundred printings, so it just goes to show just how disseminated Akira is, like how widely read it is. So yeah, it has quite the legacy behind it. But now we're going to head into some anime stuff, some classics returning to streaming or been added to catalog. And one of those series is, of course, Case Closed. Finally, the early episodes are back on Crunchyroll. Yeah, uh, it looks like, because uh, t- I mean, for those who don't know, TMS basically is like going out of their way to uh, to try to make Conan big uh, outside of Japan, uh, especially in the U.S., because uh, they have basically added episodes 1 to 43 on Crunchyroll, whereas originally, you know, back when um, Crunchyroll and Funimation were, you know, still doing stuff together, they did put up the first, like, 130-ish episodes of the series, only to be taken down a few months later, unfortunately. But uh, uh, but now we have at least the first 43 episodes back up on Crunchyroll, uh, and I guess... The big question being, you know, whether they're going to actually put up anything past, you know, 130. Like, if we're going to actually see newly subbed episodes of Case Closed that were not originally available before. That would uh, that would be nice. 
I don't have the quote in front of me, but I know, I know, like the vice president, I think, of TMS came out and said that they did have more plans for Conan over the next year. Um, so again, it's it's safe to say that uh, Conan, I think, is going to hopefully make a pretty big comeback. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how frequent these batches of episodes being dropped are going to be. Because from what I understand, at least from what has been discussed, it seems like these uh, translation the translations are the same as like the Funimation versions for the most part. Yeah, but the subtitle, the actual subtitles are different. Mm-hmm. And the actual video they're using is like I guess what TMS uses for like their international releases too. Yeah, so I am. Yeah, I'm wondering like since they are using like pre existing translations, like that obviously is going to speed up the work a bit. But when they get the stuff that has not been translated into English before. Like, how is that going to slow that down? Like, yeah, I'm I'm really wondering, like, how frequently we'll get batches of episodes if they go beyond what Funimation did prior. Yeah, I, I can only imagine that, like, you know, they they already have the first, obviously, like, like you said, like, since they're using Funimation's old translations, like, you know, I'm I'm sure they, again, like you said, they already have, like, a lot of work done but i'm also wondering if like maybe because of that they're maybe translating newer stuff as we speak would be interesting to see but uh yeah this is this is obviously really big i mean we're 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 both pretty big like case close fans as well as our good friend and contributor to the show vlor gtz who is also a very big conan fan um you know i'm i'm sure we were all happy to see this i like I, I, I was kind of tempering my expectations, what with, like, you know, new movies and specials coming out. Like, I thought that was already pretty cool, but I honestly didn't think we were going to see, like, I didn't really think we were going to see, the like, the actual TV series legally available again anytime soon. So, this this was this was a nice surprise, and I, I hope Crunchyroll continues to upload more episodes. Absolutely. Yeah. I want to see past where Funimation did. I want to see that... Uh... 600 episode gap of episodes that they never <laughs> legally subtitled finally available i i mean i mean if one piece can fill its gap then so can conan but uh, moving on from that we also have another really cool classic anime being uh, made available for streaming with english subtitles free on youtube and uh that is the anime adaptation of oishinbo uh, from Tetsu Kairia and Akira Hanasaki. Um, now o- Oishinbo, I'm I'm very vaguely familiar with. Uh, I've I've read like a little bit of the manga, uh, but I haven't really like seen a lot of it. But I I also know that like it's a very uh, well established, long running, very very popular cooking manga over in Japan. And uh, I'm I'm glad to see that uh, we're we're getting we're getting the anime free and legally on what seems to be I'm assuming like the, the official like Oishinbo YouTube page. Um, we'll definitely leave links in the show notes for anybody who wants to check it out. But uh, but yeah, I, I I checked out a little bit of the first episode, and uh, it seems it seems like a really cute, fun show. I definitely wanna uh, I definitely wanna watch more of it. Yeah, it's a classic. I have read the entire Viz release, the best of editions. They're a la carte editions, so 
all those volumes a couple of years ago and i really really enjoy the series like it's a very fun food manga and i think that is really nice to finally have the anime i mean i've never seen the anime version before so it was really fun i watched all the episodes so far they have both the first and second episode up right now and they're planning to release episodes like pretty frequently like all through october they're going to release new ones on monday wednesday friday then wednesday's friday starting november and then eventually they'll do the entire thing so i'm excited about that but yeah like i like the relationship between the characters i like Basically, the main rivalry is between Yamaoka and Kaibara, his dad. And that's always a great relationship because Yamaoka wants so much because his dad is like so freaking hard on him, so mean on him. Like he really wants to show up as dad and prove that he is like the superior critic and make the ultimate menu of culinary cuisine and gourmet to show that he has better taste than his dad, but his dad is always one step ahead of him. Like, every time, it's like this catchphrase he has, it's like, you forgot one thing. <laughs> and every time, like, it seems like Yamaka forgets one thing that makes Kaibara's decisions and opinions on what is the better dish, like, what makes him win out in every challenge and conflict they have. And it's a lot of fun. Just that rivalry between him and his dad. and But, you know, also uh, the relationships between just everyone in the Tozai News office place is really fun. And it was really cool to just compare the anime and the manga. So the first half of the second episode, the corresponding chapter that is available in uh, the Viz editions, it's the first chapter of the Rice volume. And so it was really nice. Like, after I watched that, I went and checked the manga to compare, like, the manga and anime version. And there are a lot of interesting changes. I mean, obviously, there are character design changes because in the early manga, like, Yamoka has, like, kind of a mustache double. Like, he looks even more uh, the shaven and slovenly than he does even in the anime, which uses kind of more, like, of the later character designs. But... Yeah, also, yeah, uh, Yuko looks really different in the early manga. Like, she has a completely different hairstyle and dresses differently, so that was interesting. But there's, they really changed the s- structure of the story around two, so it's not like a complete one-on-one adaptation. So I found that very interesting, and like, I'm excited to, as these episodes continue, to also go back and check back with uh, the corresponding manga whatever we have on hand legally in english from the manga since it's like from all around the series but yeah it's i recognize the that first segment from the manga so it's fun to compare those and yeah like i am super into oishimbo it's like reputation precedes it as cookie manga we did a retrospective on food wars and in food wars there's definitely a reference to oishimbo specifically kaibra it's always kaibra that gets referenced we reviewed fly me to the moon recently too and there's a scene where nasa is trying to cause us cooking and like he becomes a kaibra for a second when oh, wow. judging the food and so like yeah like this is definitely an embedded part of like pop culture that a lot of people in japan recognize and yeah i'm, I'm glad that it's going to be shared uh outside of japan for a wider audience internationally it's a good series yeah i'll definitely try to keep up with this as best i can oh you know i also discovered recently a video that like went through the viz release of the manga and mentioned like which 
episodes of the anime they corresponded to. Hmm. So, like, I leave, I'll leave that. In, we should leave that in the show notes if people want to check in on that as this uh, anime is being posted on the YouTube channel and, like, see, okay, here's the corresponding manga chapter this episode is based on. Mm, that that'd be really cool. Yeah, we'll definitely leave that in the show notes. Um, but uh, we also probably we're, we're we're not even we're we're just getting to like probably the biggest news we have to cover. Oh yeah, I mean, so it was already big that Netflix acquired Evangelion for streaming last year, but it left a lot of people, you know, a little bitter, a little like man. But Netflix, what we wanted physically, I'd like to have Evangelion on my shelf again. Well, thanks to G Kids, that dream has been realized because G Kids has licensed the Ava TV series as well as the Debt and. Uh, True Squared and uh, the End of Evangelion Films for Blu-ray and digital download and theatrical rights, too. So potentially we could see the movies screen in theaters when people are more comfortable going to theaters again and they are healthy. But yeah, like this is really great. A great kind of announcement to make to coincide with the 20th anniversary of the series. And yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing that release come out next year. Mm hmm. Uh, it's like I said on Twitter, G Kids is about to make a shit ton of money. Yeah, yeah. Like, I can imagine a lot of people are going to be buying this. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially after Netflix introduced it to an even wider audience than even before. It was already, like, one of the most well-known, well-regarded, and popular anime out there. Yeah, I mean, I think there's going to be a lot of demand for this one. I wouldn't be surprised if G Kids also maybe picked up the the, the next uh, movie coming out hopefully soon. Well, Funimation still has the rights to the Rebuild film, so oh, I mean okay. we are I guess going to see if the relationship between Car and Funimation has soured because there was still that whole kerfuffle with 3.0 that they didn't like the original screening of 3.0 at I think AX, and so they forced Funimation to like redub it and that process took so long which is why the blu-ray release of that film took so long to come out over here Woof. but yeah i mean there might be some tension still between nation and kara but since they have the other films i mean it would make sense if they, they get the final one but yeah i mean supposedly that film is finished i mean it was supposed to come out in june so eventually it will come out and eventually it will make its way over here and we'll see who has it when it does but on the subject of movies, let's move away from anime to talk about live-action adaptations of anime because it has been announced that Lee Isaac Chung is going to be directing the Hollywood remake of Makoto Shinkai's Your Name. And they're writing uh, the script that was previously done by Emily V. Gordon, the previous draft script. So, yeah. Lee Isaac is known for the films uh, Moon, Yorangabo, and Minari. And, uh, yeah, I'm not too familiar with their work, but they seem to be a well-respected director, and their film Minari, which drew inspiration from their childhood experiences living as a Korean uh, American Family on our Kansas farm. That garnered one of the top two awards at uh, the Sundance Film Festival earlier this year. Hmm. So, you know, a very acclaimed director. So potentially this is in good hands. But we do know that, you know, this is also 
a request from the Japanese side of things that this will be a westernized take on the source material. So it's not going to have the same cultural perspective of the original Your Name. But we'll see what perspective that this uh, director brings. Mm -hmm. Hopefully it ends up being good. Mm -hmm. And now we have come to our last bit of news to talk about, our last little thing, and that's just a follow-up on the Black Clover character popularity poll. On a previous episode, we discussed the Japanese results, but we didn't have the English results out yet. But now we do have those results out, so we'll just quickly cover them here as promised. And it's interesting what made the English list and what didn't compared to the Japanese list. So going from bottom to top, we have at number 10, Charmy. Number 9, Zora. Number 8, Luck. Number 7, Yuno. At number 6, Nero Sasekra. At number 5, Mario Leona. At number 4, Julius. At number 3, Noel. Number 2, Asta. Uh, no, number 2 is Yami. And number 1 is Asta. So the top two are the same in both the English and Japanese results, Asta and Yami. I think the interesting changes in the English results is that Julius is there, Mariolona is there, Zora and Charmy are there. And this differs from the Japanese list, which instead includes Charlotte, Gauche, and Leopold, and Magna. So it seems that English readers and Japanese readers differ in which of the black bulls uh, they prefer. And English readers like the Wizard King and Muriona a lot more, whereas Japanese readers are really big into Charlotte. Mm, yeah, there's really interesting differences between both lists here. Um, I'm very happy that Mario Leona ranked at number five in the English language list, uh, personally speaking, but uh, that's just me. Uh, I'm sure Maxi is very happy that uh, Zora in particular actually got ranked in the English list. Uh, so there's that. Uh, honestly, it is um, like th these are the characters I think I would expect for for the English list in particular. Like, I feel like all these characters are characters I... Whenever I, whenever I see Black Clover fans talk online, I feel like these are the characters that are like brought up a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm certainly more in line with the English list myself than the Japanese list because, like, I don't dislike Leopold and Magna or Gauche, but like they're not like my favorites necessarily. But I am really a fan of Charmy and Zora and Julius and Merleona. So, uh, yeah, I think I really like how the English uh, list turned out. Yeah, I, I do, too. And, uh, yeah, I think that's going to be about it for news. Indeed. And now it is time to investigate Moriarty the Patriot. The game is afoot. Professor James Moriarty. He is the nemesis of Sherlock Holmes. He is a genius, a philosopher, an abstract thinker. He has a brain of the first order. He sits motionless like a spider in the center of its web, but that web has a thousand radiations and he knows well every quiver of each of them. However, this 
is not the Moriarty you know. This is Moriarty, the Patriot. And we're going to talk about him and his manga today on the show. We're reviewing the first volume of Moriarty the Patriot, a manga that's been running in Jung Square since 2016. First volume has just come out just in time for its anime adaptation to come out. The story comes to us by Ryusuke Takeuchi, who previously is known for doing a short-lived story uh, called Stars, and art is by Hikaru Miyoshi, who does the Psychopaths manga. And we are talking about the series today with our good friend and letterer for the series and for on a number of great series like World Trigger, Black Clover, and Blue Flag, Ace Christman. Hello! Hello, Ace. Thank you for coming on to investigate the Moriarty manga <laughs> with us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, always a good time. And this was a really good time to read. Of course, Sherlock Holmes and... The characters in the Holmes can, they have been interpreted, reinterpreted in so many ways. There are like so many adaptations of this character in these stories. But I think this was a really novel take on Moriarty as a character, really reframing him from the kind of calculating, scheming villain that was established in the original stories and has been, you know repeated in other versions but here he's more of a heroic character and they really reframe his motivations in a way that he is technically an antagonist of the culture that he's in but like his deeds are to the reader and to the people that he's helping very heroic so yeah it, it was really really cool but i was going to just ask you ace like what was your first like exposure to moriarty and uh, what are your initial thoughts on it uh i think my first exposure was uh maybe two years ago maybe three years ago uh i'm friends with uh the translator and He's an awesome dude, and he's like, hey, he came up to to the editor, uh, Ray and I, and was like, hey, you guys should push to get this licensed, if I remember right. And we're like, oh, this is, this is pretty cool, this is pretty cool, because he was a big fan. And it took a little while, but like, I was like, okay, well, I'll, I'll check it out, you know, like, I don't know if this is ever going to license it, but that would be cool. Um, and so I checked it out, I was like, this this seems pretty neat. And then, you know, like, I kind of forgot about it for a while. And then Ray was like, hey, we got the license. You want to work on it? And of course I did, so. <laughs> nice. And then reading the series, like, I mean, did it surprise you too with the way it reinterpreted the characters? Oh, d definitely. Like, I'm not a huge, huge Sherlock Holmes person, but I, I definitely have watched many adaptations, and Moriarty's always come off to me as just, like, like a really smart villain, but kind of just mustache-twirling evil. Like, okay, so he just, like, does he just want to prove that he's, you know, brilliant? You know, like, I just never felt any motivation behind him. And, you know, maybe that's a shortcoming on on me because I just didn't pay attention. But with this series, I feel 
I mean, like you said, like he has very clear motivations and it makes him a very interesting character in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you're on the money with how Moriarty has been represented as like this cartoonish, simple, like evil minded villain in other adaptations, because that is kind of how he was in Doyle's original story in The Final Problem. It's like the idea of Moriarty was that like he was basically this master criminal mastermind who had his hand in like half the crimes in all of London and all the crimes that Holmes have ever solved. So he's like this big bad for Holmes to confront and defeat. And then that has continued on in other adaptations. And here it's like very different because like he isn't doing all these different things out of self-interest. Like in this manga, it is all very rooted from like a compelling motivation. I think that is what... Uh, Ryosuke Taguchi like was really interested in in the author's comment he has in this volume he talks about how he grew to really empathize with villains who like really are fighting against the system they were in like Colonel Muska and like imagining like why they want to do the things they did and similarly with Moriarty as a character like he's such kind of like an enigmatic vague character in like the original story and in other interpretations in terms of like what he actually wants so I really like this recontextualization of them I'm like looking back at the time period like what was kind of the common conflict of the day or really uh, a timeless conflict that is pervaded forever but like really looking at why would a person like Moriarty come to be who he is and what would he be doing all the things he's doing all his schemes for for what end and it really reframes it yeah it's like this heroic character in a really interesting way it's like it is totally transformed from like just this you know cartoonish villain that was meant to represent like the most evil of evil the ultimate evil and then now he is the one who is like exposing and bringing justice to the evils in like this corrupt system that is the classist hierarchical structure of late 19th century london and england yeah yeah uh just just to rewind a bit, I saw the Colonel Muska mention. Uh, that is Colonel Muska from Castle in the Sky, right? That they met. Yes. Okay, I just wanted to be sure. Yeah, no, I I thought this manga was really interesting too. I'm I am in no way like a Sherlock head at all. I I know very basic information about the character. I don't. I, I could probably count all the Sherlock adaptations I've seen on like one hand. But uh, so I knew nothing. I didn't really know much about the Moriarty character going into this but after reading the first volume of this like i definitely want to read more like this manga could not have been released at a better time i think (laughs) oh yeah i mean it is the perfect manga to read for just like the catharsis of seeing evil rich people get what they deserve for all the cruelty they callously commit yes the the quote-unquote untouchables getting their comeuppance exactly yes i mean so like that was kind of interesting thing as i was like reading i didn't know what to expect in terms of like how moriarty's 
like motivations how his character would be presented like whether he would be a villain protagonist or if they were framing him as an anti-hero but as i've been reading and thinking about it like he really is a folk hero like he's a hero of the people like he is being consulted by people who have been wronged by these rich oligarchs who have hoarding wealth and resources and they have themselves already committed heinous crimes and murders and so he is delivering karmic retribution for them like they aren't they doesn't they don't just get murdered like they get murdered in a very particular way that reflects the cruelty that they had previously displayed Mm -hmm. yes yeah, and th- these are also the kind of rich people who like if where where they feel like they're the victim. Uh, if you even take like uh, even take like a few pennies away, they're just like, oh no, what's going to happen to my entire lifestyle or whatever. <laughs> oh, I can only afford si- afford six manners. Oh, <laughs> like I mean, brazenly, the Baron in the s- second chapter is <laughs> against like reducing the rent payments because he's like oh but what about my lifestyle and those working class people they're just cattle to us nobles anyway it's like ultimate scummy thinking of people's lives as having different values and thinking that their lives are more superior just because of kind of the privileges they were born with in being born into noble class. He can't even take the time out of his poker game with all of his other rich friends to save a sick child. Yeah, and when they ask for just water, he's like, water? You're gonna pay for that? (laughs) (laughs) Because guys like that control the resources, they feel like entitled to owning and having them. And so when they aren't like willing to be charitable and just be generous, even though they have an abundance of wealth and time and things they can offer people. But no, they see as like other people who don't have those things and ask for them as nuisances and pleading. And so they just want to punish them. Like we see like when the Moriarty's plan and when they confront the Baron in, in the dinner scene at the end of the chapter, like, he signs, like, the apology letter for leading to the debt of their child by not offering them help. But he still says, oh, but I'm going, I'm still going to raise your rent to unlivable levels after this to, like, Mr. Burton. So, like, he's really like, oh, you have inconvenienced me, you are causing problems for me. I am going to get back at you by making your life a living hell. And so that is why, because these guys are so viciously and unrelentedly self-entitled and cruel, like it is like satisfying to see them get their just desserts. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, they're, they're so like cartoonishly evil about how they see like the working class and anybody underneath them that like, it's very easy to feel cathartic when Moriarty ultimately commits his deeds and you know, a- actually murders the people he goes after. <laughs> you don't, you don't, you don't really feel too sorry for them at the end of the day, right? They aren't shown as having any redeemable qualities, and I think another thing that really helps Moriarty come off as 
if not, like, I think justified, but also sympathetic, is that he is not, like, blanketly trying to murder all nobility. Like, in the third chapter, when he is talking with the friend of... Like, that's one of the students that has gone missing. He accuses him of, hey, are you just interested in what's going on with this guy out of your own self-interest? But And then the guy is like, no, like, he's my friend. And so Moriarty thinks to himself, you know, I don't believe that people can't change from the moment they're born or they're born a certain way. And so he you know, becomes a professor at this elite school to help shape the minds of the next generation of aristocrats to be better people. And he's also, like, willing to help and extend a hand to people in that class, especially young people in that class, who demonstrate good moral character and, like, treat other people right. So he's not, like, blanket, like, oh, I'm going to murder all rich people. He's like, no, I'm going to kill all the evil people to make a better world. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If it, it feels like a more well-thought-out ideology that you kind of saw, like, in Death Note. I, yeah, I mean, his ideology is more well-formed than Light's in Death Note, because Light was, like, blanketly, oh, I'm gonna kill all evil people, but, like, how he approached doing that was that he, like, looked up people who were incarcerated in prisons and then just, like, blindly wrote down their names in the Death Note. So, it's like, he was very removed from, like, all the people he was killing. He just, like, looked up a list of criminals and, like, went for, like, just killing them. And also, very arguably, Light himself was also very privileged. Not exactly rich or yeah. anything, but, you know. I mean, he was the son of a policeman who afforded him certain connections and protections in terms of, like, suspicion not being as cast on him because of his relationship with his father. But also, I mean, Light himself approached this because he thought, oh no, it is my destiny my to create this better world and he had a god complex about it like he saw himself as like the person who will single-handedly change the world and be revered as the god who changed the world meanwhile moriarty is not in it for his own like self-aggrandizement like moriarty is genuinely interested in helping people in need like he doesn't like act upon any of these murders by his own volition, it's like he is approached by clients. He is approached by people who are wronged, who ask, hey, help me. I want to get revenge. I want to kill this person. And that's when he goes through it and helps them, like, achieve, like, emotional closure to, like, their suffering by helping them kill that person. Yeah, I, I think he sees himself, like, he knows what he's doing is technically evil, and bad but he knows he's doing it for the betterment of society so he doesn't like like yeah I, I don't think he sees himself as any sort of hero he's just sort of like a necessary poison perhaps yeah he, he's doing what he thinks needs to be done and I think that's another reason why his efforts always come off so satisfying because not only do all his victims, not only are they all so unrepentantly, like, malicious and scummy, but in their deaths, like, we see that their victims begin to heal. Like, in the second chapter in particular, like, the couple whose child died because uh, the Baron didn't offer them 
medical treatment, even though he had a doctor on staff, like their marriage and their lives begin to, you know, finally start to heal after that entire incident kind of broke them apart. And Moriarty was like, like the Michelle, the mother, she came to Moriarty and said, I will do, I will pay anything to get this revenge. And she offered her life basically. And Moriarty was at the end of it saying, okay, so what I want you to do with your life is to live a good life, you know, live a little bit longer, you know, have a happy life with your husband, you know, now you can like just move forward which is like really admirable and like really a nice end for that character like he gives this person a reason to live again i want to say something about uh with with the baron case this is kind of unrelated but i do like the way they took out the baron spoiler spoilers with um with the grapefruit yeah (laughs) because like you always hear you know like don't take this medication with you know don't have grapefruit while you take this medication and Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> like, it, it really, like, kind of hit home. Like, oh, okay, yeah, it will kill you. I mean, it's a manga, you know, but I don't know. I just found that funny. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, they do say that about grapefruit and medication sometimes, don't they? It was a really clever setup that they established this idea that Burden is a grapefruit farmer and they serve him grapefruit. And he, he also has like this medication problem. So yeah, it really all came together in a really satisfying way. Yeah, I really appreciate, like like you said, it's the, it's the satisfaction. You know, like you want the bad guy to die or to pay for his sins. And it's every chapter I've, every case, I've done so far. It's just been really satisfying in that. Can I ask what your favorite case so far has been, even if it's not in the first volume? Ooh, um, let me think. I, I think probably there's one at the end of volume three, and it's a Hound of Baskerville's case, Ooh. and it's it's brutal. Like it's really really brutal it's it's very terrible it's uh i don't want to spoil too much but it's it's cruelty in a way that's just like how could you do this <laughs> oh wow oh my gosh so seeing the bad guy get their comeuppance and seeing some of the characters that kind of have to dance for the villains you know like they're, they're kind of like puppeted by the villains like seeing seeing their feelings was really touching to me and then yeah seeing seeing the villain get his comeuppance oh he's so terrible <laughs> oh god it was really hard to work on that arc because it's just it's 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 really brutal but like i i think it's a really good arc and it it also helps the characterization of, of some of the secondary characters so you really see them grow because you know it's it's always been moriarty at, at the forefront and we see his sort of like little team do their parts but this puts them more in the spotlight and i really like that nice nice that, that's good to hear yeah because we, we we really don't get to see a lot of them in this first volume which is unfortunate yeah fred and morin appear in the third chapter and yeah, they come in to help Moriarty with his scheme to trick Bale into like going to like the Riverside Bridge and then confess to like murdering Frida. And then like, man, just again, I love the karmic 
uh, punishments, like, that are just so particular, it's appropriate. Like, Moron shooting at Bale's feet, so he dances up the bridge and falls off just like what happened to Frida. It's just so great. Yes. But, yeah, I, I'm really interested in how the series is going to use Moron and Fred, because Moron is, like the second biggest antagonist in Sherlock uh, canon and is like a right-hand man to Moriarty in Sherlock canon. But, and Fred is like also uh, connected to Moriarty, but he's like more of a minor character in like one story. But the interesting about Fred is that he is kind of like a go-between between Moriarty and Sherlock. Like he is in the company of Moriarty, but he sells information to Sherlock. And in the opening, like, two-page spread of the book, like, he's kind of positioned in between Moriarty's group and Sherlock's group. So, like, I'm wondering, like, is he also going to go between both sides in this manga? So that's something that I'm looking forward to seeing that develops. And really just Sherlock and Watson coming into this in general. Like, I'm excited to see how their dynamic is going to work in this series since Moriarty has taken on a lot of admirable heroic attributes that normally would be attributed to Sherlock in a story like this himself, including even just like going about doing inductions and solving uh, crimes and stuff. So yeah, I'm really interested in that battle of wits and how that'll play out in this manga. Yeah. And, and talking about that, that first spread, I, there are a lot of characters here that we haven't seen yet. And you know, like, like I've only worked through the third volume, but yeah, we haven't seen a lot of these characters. Um, I'm not... See, I, I always took that character that's not facing us. I always took that as Moron. Moran. However you say his name. <laughs> Sorry, dude. It's really hard to not say Moron. <laughs> yeah. You know, I wonder, but... Because, like, sh- I looked up Sherlock's design. It, it's very this, close, yeah. They're very similar, yeah. So I wonder if Sherlock isn't even in this. But, yeah, since we can't see the, the face... But there, there are so many characters, like, so either, either one, you know, depending on who, who that is, we, we've seen them as of, as of Volume 3. Uh, spoiler, Sherlock does come in in Volume 2. Um, but then we've got Fred, and Luis, and, uh, and Moriarty, and Albert, and then that's, that's all. Like, so there are four characters that I have no idea who they are, and I'm very excited about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Irene, I think there's a woman who's supposed to be Irene Adler on the left side. So, you're right. Yeah, I'm interested in seeing that develop too. So, yeah, like, I'm really curious of like how the cast is going to expand and develop. But, I mean, speaking of also the existing cast, I think another like really cool, interesting thing is really Moriarty has been split into three characters in this manga. Like, there's three characters named James Moriarty. There's Willigan, who is, like, our main Moriarty and who we've mainly been referring to. But, yeah, there's also Louise and Albert. And I think they're all interesting refractions of, like, the same concept behind the character. Because, like, the brains is William. William is the one who goes about doing all the deductions of, like, how, like, crime has been committed in terms of, especially in the third chapter, how Bale convinced and got Frida to like commit suicide, but also like going about the schemes to deliver the, you know, comic retribution. But then we have like Albert is kind of the guy who makes connections and kind of is like, because he's like the first son and noble he's war. A and, like, social he's able light. To, 
Yeah, yeah. He's able to ingratiate himself with, like, aristocratic society and, like, help uh, assist William in that way by, like, helping him get the pieces in the place. But then I'm really interested in Louis because Louis is, like, he's different from the other two because, I mean, William basically steals the identity of the actual William in his mind in the first <laughs> chapter. Like, he, like they... It's really amazing that they can get away with, like, making me feel so satisfied to see, like, a 12-year-old get stabbed by a chair leg through the mouth <laughs> and then through his abdomen. But, yeah, like, uh, so he steals his identity after murdering him. and But because he does that, he's able to gain, like, the privileges he would have as, like, a noble-born uh, aristocrat. So he's able to get an education and earn, like, accolades in, like, high society and become a professor. Meanwhile, we see Louise is only mostly based at home. Like, he doesn't seem to really get out much or have an occupation outside of housekeeping. And I wonder if that's because, like, he was not able to change his identity. And so, like, the status and stigma of, like, him being originally, like, an orphan is still preventing him from moving up on the social ladder like William and Albert have. So I'm kind of interested in the role like he plays in the dynamic. So far, he seems kind of be to be the Watson to uh, Moriarty's homes in the sense that he's someone that William can bounce off ideas off of while still offering his own unique perspective on things. But yeah, he's also a fascinating character in that way. Yeah, and I, I think it's going to be interesting to see how he develops. Like he does get some interesting development actually in the same arc that uh um the other side characters do in the hound of baskervilles stuff um which i i didn't expect it you know i i saw the other two kind of like you know getting more i wouldn't say backstory but just more development and then like all of a sudden they're like oh and here's some development for him too and i was like thank you (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean, there's a dozen volumes of this out in Japan, so I'm sure there's a lot of interesting stories that have been told. From my understanding, uh, the series is still mostly episodic, so arcs don't last too long. But there's also so many ways to play around with the setting and the basic principles and the formula of a home story, and especially with the way that this manga has presented like its formula of like there's a different like evil rich person each time that Moriarty helps someone scheme to if not murder maybe it has it all been murders so far in the volumes you were you've worked on Ace um I believe it hasn't all been murders but there have been deaths in all of them Somebody dies in every one. Sometimes, uh, do you care for spoilers? Not at all. Um, sometimes I, I think the characters are led to off themselves. So I guess you could say it's murder in a way, because they are encouraged in various ways to take their own lives. But it's not always Moriarty's hand that's exactly directly doing it. Okay, I mean that I, I see what you're saying because that that's kind of what happened in the third chapter of Volume One. Almost, yeah, yeah. Now that you mention it, I mean, as indirectly as 
it can be with like moron like literally shooting at the guy's feet to get him to jump off a bridge. There there are times too when after Sherlock becomes a character where he's the focus. So it's it's kind of seeing a story from his point of view and Moriarty and his gang may or may not be kind of in the background. They may be the one that's kind of leading Sherlock around or, you know, like playing off of him. But Sherlock and Watson will be more of like the forefront main character in that arc, which is very interesting, I think, because you see just a different perspective. Oh, that's really cool. See, it's interesting because I I would have figured with Sherlock coming in the story so early on that uh, that he'd really throw in a wrench in uh, in Moriarty's plan at least every once in a while. Well, it's in. I mean, it's interesting because again, in the original like Holmes canon, the idea is that Moriarty was behind like half the schemes that Holmes solved, but he didn't figure it out until like the final problem oh, okay. that last the original last story so like he was like this force in the background throughout like most of his career until he finally exposed and confronted him and i am really interesting to see how that relationship between holmes and moriarty is going to develop and like when holmes will figure out that he's behind a lot of the things that he's been investigating and then that confrontation happens because we see that in the first page, a flash forward to Reichenbach Falls, we see like Moriarty about to fall off and Holmes like grabbing onto him before he can. So it's like it's hinting towards that confrontation and that the, even though this version of Moriarty is so different, he may meet the same fate as his original namesake. Yeah, that that probably won't happen until like probably close to the end of this manga. Yeah, I imagine unless like they do some of the the crazy things that a lot of other like interpretations and adaptations do, where like after the fall, Rockenbach falls, like both survive, and then Moriarty survives because of some like weird <laughs> superhuman reason, like he had some sort of special vest, or he was actually like some ancient evil psychic being. <laughs> I read up on, like, a bunch of different uh, interpretations of the character, and there was a, literally one where Moriarty was, like, this evil, like, uh, supernatural uh, force called the Evil One. And that is how he's, why he was able to survive the fall, and, and surviving the fall reawakened his memories of his uh, past life as, like, this what? evil supernatural force. This, 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 sounds, this sounds like stuff that would happen in, like, Black Butler. I know, I mean, there's a lot of Black Butler vibes this uh, Okay, in I'm, terms of like, I'm, I'm glad I'm not the only one who thought that because like the whole time I was reading through this, I was thinking if this were released in like the mid aughts, boy, th- th- this would th- I think this would have the exact same kind of fan base as Black Butler. I think it does now, but yeah, I feel yeah not just because of the setting, but also again like in Black Butler they investigate like really uh, sinister crimes, pretty much always perpetuated by like evil elites so it's very similar in that way it's just that there is less supernatural element because there's no like literal devils or witches or any elements like that in moriarty yeah but they have the same uh message eat the rich (laughs) exactly (laughs) so i think that we've covered a lot of ground in terms of the teams of story and then what we like about uh, the characters. And there are a few questions that uh, we 
have from fans on Twitter. But also, we asked a few questions to Ray, the editor of the series, about their thoughts on Moriarty that I think we can read through and maybe bounce off of. Yeah, unfortunately, Ray wasn't able to come on the podcast themselves, but uh, they were very they were nice enough to provide answers to our questions still. Yeah. And so I just have a few questions we asked them. And starting off, uh, we, I asked, uh, what are your thoughts on the way the manga reimagines Moriarty and Sherlock Holmes characters in Mythos? And Ray responded that they really liked this reimagining. They spent a lot of time in college researching Sherlock-related media and Arsene Lupin. So when they first heard about the premise of this manga, they were intrigued. It's so much more than just a reimagining of Moriarty and Sherlock. There's a lot of layers to it, which are spoilers that you'll have to find out when you read it, and it's really unique. Moriarty in the original Sherlock stories doesn't actually appear much, so this Moriarty is very different. Sherlock reminds me a lot of Cumberbatch's take on Sherlock with better hair. <laughs> I'm happy with both of their characterizations and the extra layers of story thrown in make it even more unique. But you'll have to read the manga to find out what I mean. And man, Ray is really on point with that Sherlock uh, comparison. Because uh, <laughs> when I saw the manga, I was like, you know, reimagining the Sherlock characters as like these really handsome 20-somethings with great hair. Yeah, I think that is definitely inspired by the BBC Sherlock. Uh, but also, uh, I think that Moriarty's title in this manga of crime consultant is kind of a very copyright a way to use the Moriarty in the Sherlock show's title of consulting criminal in a way that is just technically legally not copyright <laughs> copyright free. <laughs> yeah, I, I also couldn't help but feel like, man, people who like the BBC Sherlock should really get into this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's <laughs> I sure hope they a do. BBC Sherlock manga, but like this is a, a really great you know take on it that goes in a super different direction and like this uh this moriarty is so different from the bbc sherlock uh because that bbc sherlock is also kind of in the line of like this sociopath uh manipulative uh villain whereas of course that's not the case with like the manga's moriarty at all but yeah uh next we asked uh do they see moriarty as an anti-hero as a villain protagonist and Ray responded, that's an interesting question. They honestly see him as neither of those things. Moriarty sees himself as a hero of this story, not even an anti-hero. What he's doing is right and just in his eyes. I don't see him as evil or a villain because of how he's written. Everything he does is justified, and the true disgusting nature of the nobles he kills really does convince the reader that he is the hero of the story. The theater acknowledges actually make it so Holmes is the protagonist of Moriarty's play, the play being his plan to reform the UK. But Moriarty is the director, and he's doing what he believes is right. He's the hero. And yeah, I really agree with that. And I'm interesting to see those theater analogies like play out uh, in future volumes. Yeah, you'll definitely see that starting in volume two. For for yeah, it's it's really strong. It's it's like they said, it's very cool. It's very cool. So, uh, indulge me for a bit. So, what 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 is what is the difference between an anti-hero and a villain protagonist? Well, a villain protagonist is just a villain, but we're following their story as they grow like the hero would in a hero story. Hmm, okay. Very mild. An anti-hero is a hero that indulges in activities and 
exhibits qualities that we normally associate with villains, which would be like a propensity to, you know, murder uh, evildoers and stuff like that. So, so for example, would you say something like, uh, just off the top of my head, like, would you say like a character like Walter White from Breaking Bad, like, maybe he starts out as like an anti-hero, but then just kind of becomes a villain protagonist? Yeah, I would consider Walter White a villain protagonist overall, because he ultimately does become consumed by just like the power of running the meth business. Like it starts off with him, like having like this sympathetic motivation of like, you know, wanting to earn money for his family, but that it very clearly becomes about him and not his family. So Mm. yeah, I I think that evolution can definitely happen. Uh, Especially like with a show like that, where it's like evolving as it's being written. Like, yeah, I could definitely think you could say that he evolved from antihero to a true villain protagonist by the end. That, that, that's interesting because I, I never really, I never really could, cons- because I, I, in my mind, I guess I just kind of assumed like a villain could still be an antihero in the sense of, well, this is just the protagonist we're following. I, I never really, I never really considered there being a difference between the two. That's interesting. Yeah, I think an antihero is generally heroic. You're meant to see them as heroic, even though they do sometimes non-heroic things. Meanwhile, a villain protagonist is like, you're meant to see them as the villain, but we are following their story. I would classify Light as a villain protagonist, since from very early on, he's clearly a sociopath who has a god complex. Mm. That's it. That's interesting because again, that that was a character I used to consider like an anti-hero. So okay, that that's interesting. Yeah, but I mean, he kills like the FBI agents like very early on in the series. Like he kills people who are clearly not bad guys, but are just getting in his way. So I I don't see much moral gray in that. Well, so so then I guess who who would you say is like it like it like a like an anti-hero then? Putting me on the spot. <laughs> Uh, I would say, like, uh, Sebastian Ciel, to go back to Black Butler, are anti-heroes because they will do some really cruel things to their enemies. Yeah. Like, if they get upset enough. Like, I remember, like, the at the end of, like, the Book of Circus are, like, Ciel just, like, burned down, like, the entire, like, orphanage or whatever that still had, like, the abused kids inside. At least that's, if I'm remembering correctly. So it's, like... They will engage in, you know, some behaviors you would consider, like, cruel and not very heroic, but they're still meant to be the hero of the story. And in Black Butler's case, like, I think those characters also become more heroic as the story goes on. Hmm, okay. Yeah, I, I was mostly asking for myself, because I, again, I just never really thought about the difference, but again, that that is really interesting. Uh, but what's our next question? Next, we asked, uh, what do you feel makes Moriarty such a compelling character, both in the Sherlock mythos and in this manga? And Ray responded, in the Sherlock mythos, he's the antithesis of Sherlock. Sherlock is the consulting detective. Moriarty is the criminal consultant. In the manga, they are both scarily similar in a lot of ways. One upholds the law to be right, and the other has seen and experienced the injustices in the society he grew up in and wants to be 
wants everything to be fair and equal for non-nobles. Moriarty is doing a good thing while doing bad things. He's a bad guy, but he's a hero in this manga. Even when he's murdering people or orchestrating crimes, you can't help but root for him. Especially in one of the arcs in Volume 3, he really just wants to help people and the system is against him, so he's just changing the system. I think that's pretty on the money, honestly. Absolutely. And next, we ask, like, where do you think Moriarty's character arc will lead? Uh, considering the first page shows him about to fall at Reichenbach Falls, do you think he'll meet the same fate as his original namesake? And Ray's response was, they, to be honest, they don't know. It's hard to say. This retelling is a bit more than that, but they don't think it'll have a happy ending. Sorry, they don't have much more insight. But, I mean, this is an ongoing story, so... Yeah, I mean, I'm very curious to see, again, how that rivalry between them will develop, and yeah, how we'll get to that point we see in the first page. I I agree with them. I don't think it's going to have a happy ending. Mm -hmm. Which is a shame, because since Moriarty is doing all this for the good of others, like, that's what he wants, is what he wants to uplift others, it's really a shame that ultimately he will end up having to take a fall, but Metaphorically and literally. <laughs> hey! I don't know. I kind of want to see Moriarty uh, suddenly develop psychic powers now. <laughs> uh, he was an ancient evil one all this time. And then this manga truly becomes Black Butler. Because he makes a contract for, with a devil to become alive again. <laughs> I'd read it! <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, speaking of things uh, we're looking forward to, uh, our final question we asked Ray was, what can fans look forward to seeing in future volumes? And they responded that after Volume 1, a lot of fan favorites get introduced, like Sherlock and Watson and Mrs. Hudson, but there are a lot more unexpected story twists that aren't Sherlock-related. To say them here would be spoilers, so you'll just have to read them and find out. Moriarty's followers also get a lot of character development, so if you're left sitting there like, who the heck are Moron and Fred, keep reading because they're generally interesting and fun characters. And they especially like Moron. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I'd be really interested, again, as someone who's not very well versed in Sherlock, I, I'm definitely interested in seeing more of these characters. And yeah, again, I'm also very interested in Moron and Fred. Like, I think Moron was pretty cool in this first chapter with his uh, gun skills. <laughs> what he's and... not wearing anything but a sheet. Oh my god, yeah. Also, <laughs> he's like super hot and cut. Like, yeah, more shirtless scenes of Moron, please. But yeah, also Fred uh, for also like the, you know, external meta reasons of like how he has been used in like the original story that he was introduced. I'm also interested to see if like he has an interesting go-between relationship between Moriarty and Sherlock too. Yes. So, very definitely. curious. You know, it's interesting, it's interesting that um, you brought up the psychopath connection earlier because I just like looking back, it, it didn't hit me until like the very end of the volume that like, yeah, some of these characters do look like they belong in the world of psychopaths. I know, right? Like I think Moron looks pretty similar to Kagami. Uh, it it just it just didn't it just kind of hit me right at the very end. I also uh, we also mentioned this earlier, but man, it really took me back when I found out uh, that uh, the same person writing this also wrote stars for Shonen Jump because I remember I remember reading that uh, back when it came out, and it just it was just a real blast from the past. Like 
Like, I, I haven't heard that name in such a long time. Same. Yeah. I was like, wait, wait, what? Like, I, I hadn't read the little blurb that was like, this is what they did before this. It's like, stars? I love that series. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm glad they found success with the series because I... I, I from from what I remember of Stars, I, I I remember being really sad that it had to end as soon as it did. Yeah, agreed. Well, we want to thank Ray again for answering our questions and sharing their perspective on uh, Moriarty. But we also have a question for you, Ace, on Yay. lettering in this manga and what your favorite moments were to letter in this first of all in particular but you can also discuss like the series as a whole and also were there any particular sound effects or uh spots that were difficult to redraw or find the right font for um there's a lot of sound effects like uh when something big happens where the sound effect will be kind of just like an outline for example when uh original william i guess gets impaled um, it's it's just the outline and those are always more difficult to clean up uh, so th they can always add a challenge and the series likes to, to use them but they're also fun because they're often a little chaotic looking so I get to do a lot of draw over for the sound effect itself um, I really enjoy when I get to work on like a a dramatic scene, let's say, like 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 that scene where he's getting impaled by a chair leg. <laughs> you know, it's just like, yeah, this is this is you know, I mean, it's terrible, but it, it's cool. Uh, later on in the second chapter, uh, Michelle is attacking the Baron with a knife, and she's just like screaming through the first two panels, and it's just really fun because. You know, I'm not always successful, but it's fun to try to capture that, like, that anger and chaos and just, like, feeling. Uh, so that that's that's a lot of fun to, to do those sorts of things. Uh, there is a time, there's a scene in the second volume, which I, I both hope everybody notices and nobody notices, because the Japanese sound effect was right on this guy's face. <laughs> and oh I couldn't get the English sound effect to be on his face and not cover up other things in, in the scene, like more important things, without it looking just completely out of place. So I had to redraw this guy's face, and you see his face, like he's he's a very minor character, and you see his face maybe like three other panels from the front and I spent so long trying to make this guy look how I think he's supposed to look so I, I, I both like want to be like hey look I drew this guy's face and also don't look at this guy's face so hopefully nobody will will be able to figure out what panel that is oh I am gonna have to read very closely that <laughs> volume then to study every panel to figure out which one that was yeah now we're gonna have to actively look for it <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that sort of stuff it's it's really challenging but it but it's fun like there's always a balance with lettering where like you only have so much time but you want to give you know your best and so it sometimes makes it hard when you have like a challenging page when i have to redraw somebody's face who i don't know what he's supposed to look like um so there's there's a trade-off like oh i gotta get this done because i gotta do so many pages but i want to spend all this time and i i do want to say that um 
that in the original Tonkabon, like, because this all takes place in the UK, all the text you see in the background is all already in English. So, like, when you see a, uh, like, a newspaper or you see a store sign, like, I didn't, I didn't do any of that stuff. Like, I, I had it easy in that because they were all done in English. Um, they have a uh, consultant to check in on the English adaptation to make sure everything like reads right and uh he's a friend of mine and he's a super great guy so he mm, did a wow. great job thanks for making my job easier <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh yeah i mean not having to like letter all the text on a newspaper must be a great time saver <laughs> <laughs> i'm very fortunate no that that's interesting so th- there hasn't been an instance yet where like you see something that's already in english but it's like very clearly wrong and you've had to like go in and fix it there hasn't been anything like that yet i no i don't think there has been one bit like that i do have to say it makes it a little awkward at times because you'll have like a newspaper like in the first in the first chapter you'll have a newspaper that says robbery at thompson manor and then there's a little like call out box because you know in japanese you know that that's where the japanese translation of that would be and it's just English to English, so it just says robbery at Thompson Manor in the box, and the and the you know newspaper says robbery at Thompson Manor. So sometimes it it does make things awkward, but I haven't. I don't think I've had to change any of the English signage. That's all excellent work on their part. Thank you, thank you, team. Nice. Well, very well researched English that there in the Moriarty manga. Very very good. Oh, and, I, yeah, I, I, that. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I just want to say, and, and then the the translator works really hard to try to get some of the more, uh, I guess, colloquial, you know, English in there to make it sound more fitting for the location and the error. So he works really hard on that, and I think he does a really good job. Uh, I looked at the credits page for this volume. So, do you know why the translator uses uh, uh, em- emojis <laughs> as like their? Uh, I don't know what you even call it. Uh, as like their credit. Um. Yeah. They just. Uh. They just want to remain anonymous in a way. Yeah. Okay. I. I. I can understand that. Yeah. 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 I talked to them the other day about it, and they're like, "Yeah, you know, just for for logistical reasons, they're gonna remain anonymous." And I was like, "All right, but." You know who you are, and you're doing a great job. Please keep it up. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I thought all the dialogue and everything read pretty naturally. Like, I, I never really never really felt out of place like that. But, uh, yeah, I, I, just, I just thought the way they went about crediting themselves was very interesting. And look, if you're gonna, <laughs> if, if you're gonna pick a way to stay anonymous, you just use a bunch of emojis. Like, that helps. <laughs> yeah, I thought, I was like, how do you, how do you read that? <laughs> <laughs> you don't. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I had a challenge, like, figuring out, oh, what characters do I use when I write up uh, their name in my written review? But, yeah, I figured it out. And, yeah, it's really, really fun to use, like, emojis as, like, their credit. Yeah, more people should do that, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely save some whatever, whatever, like, dumb complaints are going to get online, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But I also really do want to compliment that scene where Michelle is rushing at the Baron because I definitely really loved uh, the effect on Michelle's scream there. 
And especially like kind of the splatter effect, like the blood in kind of splatter effect of like inside the word balloon. Like I like that roughness to it a lot. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't take credit for, for that, that, that I just copied from the original, but like... Oh, okay. Yeah, the the original does a really good job and just kind of trying to capture that feeling. The the the, yeah. the text felt uh the way it was drawn, I guess, was uh it felt very similar to like I I was like, "Man, I've definitely seen this used in Black Clover before." <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, that that's that's how you know this was Ace." When 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 the text is all messy. <laughs> You can see when when that happens that that's my handwriting. <laughs> <laughs> I know a couple of letterers who do all their sound effects by hand. They don't use any fonts, and I think that's really cool. And when I found that out, I don't know, maybe ten years ago, I was like, I could do that too. No, you know what? I can't. My handwriting is terrible. And the first time I tried, my editor was like, I hate this font. It's so messy. And I was like, That's, that's my handwriting. <laughs> But hey, having messy handwriting works when you're screaming. Yeah, yeah. But I also had one other question, like a moment where I wanted to ask if it was your handwriting. Uh, like towards the end of the volume, like in the second to last uh, page of the third chapter, like Moron and Louise are having a conversation and there are like these little asides in the word bubble. Which I was wondering, is that like a, was that like a font or was that your handwriting? Um, all the sides are a, are a font. Okay, okay. Because they looked like kind of like more natural penmanshipy. But yeah, now that I'm paying attention, I am noticing like the E's are the same every time. So yeah. Yeah, it just it's just a very nice font for that. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, some really great moments and top-notch work as always, Ace. Thank you. And now we have just a few questions from fans on Twitter who, like, are also pretty excited for Moriarty. I know that Allison, our good friend Meowt900, is very excited. Their first comment is that he cute, I like he. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> she she also asks, like, do we think the series will get popular in the States with the anime? And they can see it being big with fangirls at least. But yeah, I think that from the reception to not just this first one in the manga, but also the first episode of the anime, that people are really into it. I, again, I really think that the general conceit of the series of Moriarty going around and delivering karmic justice uh, to these rich elites exploiting people is incredibly satisfying and appealing to a lot of people uh, nowadays in yes, current it times. Is so very yeah. timely, especially <laughs> now. <laughs> so yeah, I can see this being quite popular. Uh, for many reasons. I mean, like, like I said earlier, like if it doesn't already, like again, I could see this. I, I could see the Black Butler crowd, especially like uh, hanging on to this. Yeah, yeah, agreed. I, I really, I mean, obviously, it's, yeah, I want all of the series I work on to get big, you know. But I, I really hope it will. I think with the anime coming out and yeah, the boys being cute, you know, that that definitely helps it. But, you know, yeah, people give it a chance and see that it's about eating the rich. Taking down the 1%. Mm -hmm. Dine in. Dine in. Eat up. (laughs) It's some good food. 
And uh, now we have a set of questions from Moriarty Patriot, a Moriarty the Patriot fan account on Twitter. And they ask, uh, were we familiar with the Sherlock Holmes canon? And if so, without spoilers, if possible, what was our favorite moment or callback to the canon in the series thus far? And it doesn't have to be from the first volume. So, I mean, immediately on the first page, I like recognize, oh, this is Reichenbach Falls. This is like going to be like their climactic duel between Moriarty and Sherlock. So I got like some of the like really like uh, direct connections but like in doing some research i also really appreciated that the idea of splitting like the moriarty uh character into like three brothers is also something that has been done in a lot of interpretations like him having a brother also named james moriarty or like there being three moriarty brothers uh in general i like how well uh researched it is and how it's taking inspiration from different sources but also actually one a visual moment that I really liked in the second chapter when Moriarty reveals to the Baron how he has him like trapped in his clan. We see a spider web behind him. Yeah. Like I uh, quoted it earlier in the podcast, but like that is an association directly made in the first story Moriarty was introduced in that he is like sitting at the center of this spider web that has like, uh, that has like connections in all sorts of different directions where he's like involved in so many things and in this context it's like him ha- him having like entrapped his uh opponents and his victims so I-, I really like that use of that motif and kind of the recontextualization of it in the manga yes i i really like that i think that's in, in the first one i think that's my favorite kind of throwback and you know it's like not a big moment but it's just it it's really well used and then if you look at the Moriarty crest, which is on uh, the credits page, it's got three spiders on it. Oh, yeah. And I really like that. I think that's very cool. Did you have any, Colton? No, li- like I said, I'm I'm a complete noob when it comes to Sherlock. So, like, I- I'm, I'm probably the one out of the three here who would, like, notice those kinds of things at least, honestly. Um, but, they- but they are cool, what, y- what you guys have been talking about. Yeah, come on, we all know that you like the part when Moriarty gains his supernatural powers. And- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, I, I'm actively looking forward to it now. <laughs> I'm, 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 looking, I'm looking forward to Moriarty the Patriot becoming uh, Moriarty Psycho 100. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I guess on the subject of Moriarty himself... Uh, so their final question is, Napoleon the Crime or Lord of Crime, which title do you prefer for our main man, Moriarty? And I think in the context of this manga, Lord of Crime would be more appropriate because I, he technically he is like a noble and he is technically committing crimes. Ooh, good uh, point. Whereas Napoleon of Crime, like, yeah, it does communicate that like he has all these conquests uh, and this power, but... Uh, I don't think that fits this Moriarty because he's not interested in like having his hand in all these different schemes and amassing power for himself. And also Napoleon himself would be the kind of person that this Moriarty would absolutely despise in terms of using his power uh, to exploit others and conquer others. So I don't think that would be appropriate for this Moriarty. I, I like the title Napoleon of Crime, but... 
Yeah, like I never really thought about it like like you just stated, and I completely agree with you. Yeah, Lord of Crime, you know, like you said, is not just more appropriate, I think, in this context. But I, I, I personally, I think that sounds cooler. The Lord of Crime. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I am looking forward to seeing more of Moriarty's Perfect Crimes and for in the future volumes yeah yeah i i think it's safe to say we we give this first volume a thumbs up and everybody should go check it out please yeah absolutely i mean definitely read the second volume to notice that panel where ace had to redraw a character's face (laughs) (laughs) please don't find it although if you think you found it send it to me and i can tell you yes or no (laughs) Yeah, challenge who our listeners like study the second volume and see if you can figure it out. Why does this person look so weird? Oh <laughs> uh, no, that's not, that's not me. I swear. And if if people want to tweet at you, Ace, uh, where where can they find you online? Uh, I'm uh, on Twitter at Kaito Ace. That's K A I T O U underscore A C E. That's the best place to to bother me. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, you know, just just let let Ace know that you really like their work on uh, on this first volume, and and that you like their work on everything that they work on. Uh, you know, we we really enjoy your lettering work on series like this and uh, World Trigger and Black Clover and whatnot. So, thank you. Oh, I I do want to mention this is only kind of related. Uh, sometimes people message me about mistakes in volumes and they seem really apologetic about it. But no, just if you see a mistake, a misspelling, you know, like, oh, why can I see the Japanese sound effect? And it's one of my books. Please let me know. I, I really appreciate when people do point out mistakes that I can fix and we can have, you know, properly fixed in the next reprinting or in the digital version and stuff. So, so please don't hesitate if you see if you see I've messed up. Tell me, please. Yeah, definitely do. And check out Ace's daily drawings. Like her oh, doodling God. Promptober. A lot of Promptober, really my boy. Cute drawings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> definitely check out all of Ace's uh, great stuff on their Twitter and uh, read their manga. Thank you, thank you. Uh, all right, but I think Lum and I can go ahead and end the show right there. What do you, what, what do you say, Lum? I think, uh, yeah, let's go off into the night. We have done what we needed. Uh, we have solved the, the case of Moriarty the Patriot, discussing whether it was good or not, and our deductions were solid, and yeah. And you ate the rich. We ate the rich, and yeah, we're full up, so... Let's go and into some dessert in our community shoutouts. Thanks once again to Ace for coming on the show and sharing their thoughts on Moriarty the Patriot with us. It was a really fun conversation and definitely make sure to not only check out the one, but also check out Ace's work on all the manga they do and letter like World Trigger and Black Clover. And also, again, follow their Twitter to keep up with 
Promptober and older cute daily drugs. But also, we have some other things to give to Ray and their thoughts on Moriarty as well. Thank them for writing those in. And while we couldn't have them on the show, you can listen to them talk about Moriarty on the Shonen Jump podcast. So if you want to hear their thoughts more elaborated on Moriarty and what makes it so special and unique and interesting take on the Sherlock Holmes mythos and Moriarty as a character, definitely check out the latest episode of the Shonen Jump podcast. Literally, the episode title is Eat the Rich, so it's very on point. So yeah, that's a good wreck right there. And I also have a few other related community shout outs that not necessarily are Moriarty specific but thematically uh they kind of fell into this mindset of dismantling kind of in unjust systems so the first piece i want to shout out comes from anime feminist it's a piece on monica rebellion by anthony sun prickett and it reevaluates Tora's actions in the film and argues whether she should really be as villainized in the fandom as many people have made her out to be since the film's released for her decisions in that film because while the ending of the original Monica is usually seen as hopeful by fans, Antony argues that in the end of the original TV series, Monica didn't really dismantle the oppression of magical girls that they faced after she became basically a god, but merely she kind of created an afterlife for them where they could be happy after that instead of turning into witches, but this didn't fundamentally solve the injustices of the magical girl system in the show where basically it was still operating on the suffering of the magical girls and basically killed them once they got too intense. And so in the movie, while Homer does in a sense become the devil to Monica's god in trying to dismantle the heaven that she created, she's not entirely unjustified in wanting to create a better world free of any suffering for magical girls, or at the very least, a better world in which Monica herself doesn't have to shoulder the emotional burdens of everyone else as a god and fall into this line of saviorism and can, you know, just live a normal life. And so Antony brings in their own experiences as a queer Asian American and argue why Homer should not be demonized in her attempt to reject Monica's saviorism and dismantle an oppressive system that's still being perpetuated. And why the sentiment of it gets better and the original Monica's ending is kind of more of a coping mechanism and not truly liberating. And how Monica kind of institutionalized hope as a silencing force in the end of the series, which really only had meaning because the system still required the suffering of that of magical girls. The piece doesn't diminish the value of hopefulness in the TV series ending, but it does do a good job in highlighting the value of the film as a counterpoint in going beyond hope in pursuit of a better world and the true abolition of an unjust system to create a better world. So that was a really interesting piece that I really appreciated. But I also uh, really appreciated a piece from Haman Beat, another analysis piece they did. Uh, that refrains another commonly misunderstood aspect of JoJo's, uh, the heaven plan of Dio and Enrico Pucci in Stone Ocean. So in this video, they really clarified what heaven in the context of JoJo's adventure is, what Dio and Enrico Pucci meant by that, why they wanted to create it, and how the plan all ties back to the overarching theme of fate in JoJo's. The video goes on to explain, like, the ending of Stone Ocean is often misinterpreted 
and it really goes into how the end of certain ocean really represents the end of the destined conflict between the Joestar clan and Dio, and why that conclusive ending to that conflict really feels earned in the ending of Stone Ocean. So, once again, I feel that Common Beat's analysis of the teams and JoJo's and how they're reflected in the plot is really on point, and highly recommended for anyone who wants to dig deeper into the series. And for another video on a misunderstood topic, and as a follow-up to our last podcast on the representation of black characters in anime, there is a really great video made by Josh Tipsen Strauss for the Guardian YouTube channel examining anime's problem with blackface and racist anti-black stereotypes, and how that a lot of these editions are carried over from old American media, normalizing these stereotypes when they were spread worldwide. So the video shares anecdotes from black creatives in the fandom for their perspectives on reconciling racism in anime and in fandom, and takes a look at how better representation is being made now by black creators working in the industry and telling their own stories through anime. It's a really great video that goes through a lot of points that we brought up in our own uh, Black Representation podcast, and I think it's really, really worth a watch. And not just for the points being made, but also because the video editing is really slick and stylish. Like, it is an incredibly well-produced video. And for more informative videos, I'd also like to recommend ANN's recent Fireside Chat videos, uh, interviews with Sean Kleckner of Right Stuff and with Mary Gibson of Will Chow from Retro Crush. The interview with Sean provided really great insight on how retail shipping and licensing have been affected by the pandemic and the general state of the anime and manga industry and reveals some really cool insights into how the manga market has actually grown since quarantine as has the demand for anime manga projects in general. So it's kind of actually made 2020 the best year in sales Right Stuff's ever had. Wow. And the end of the interview also turned things around and had Sean interview ANN head honcho Christoph McDonald about his origins in fandom and how he got involved with ANN and eventually came to run the site, which was really cool to learn about. And Mike Tool's interview with the Retro Cush team similarly shared fun insights into the fandom histories of Mary and Shao's people and how they grew up and were exposed to anime in other countries, and also exploring how RetroCrush came to be, how it's growing, and their future plans, and licenses they were really excited to get, and the strangest novelties in their catalog. Both interviews are incredibly informative and entertaining insights into the state of the anime industry. But to step away from anime briefly in my shoutouts, I want to shout out Wisecrack, which does a lot of great videos discussing the intersection of philosophy in media, including several videos on many different anime, like Psychopaths, One Punch Man. They've covered a lot of different series on there, but specifically I want to shout them out be- shout them out uh, because of its co-founder, Jared. Jared recently announced that he's leaving Wisecrack and speaking as a longtime viewer of the channel, who really appreciated his perspective in videos, you know, his presence as a host on the channel is definitely going to be missed, but I think he left the channel on a high note with a podcast review of one of his favorite films of one of his favorite series, South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. The podcast used the film as a branching off point to discuss South Park's place in pop culture and the responsibility media should have on the content it depicts and the messages that it represents and communicates and also how the meta 
aspect of South Park is represented in the film and in recent seasons of the show. How South Park sees itself in the context of pop culture and its own reckoning in recent seasons about taking responsibility for their past mistakes and reassessing its identity. So the conversation was a really great swan song for Jared, discussing, again, the intersection of philosophy, media, pop culture, basically everything that the channel is known for and Jared really brought to the channel. But also on the subject of South Park, a related video on the topic, I also want to recommend Bedhead Bernie's video essay on the politics of South Park, or lack thereof, and then how the show's increasing need to be timely and topical ultimately led it astray from the small-time community and pop culture focus of the earlier seasons. Bernie makes a great point that Matt and Trey don't really have politics so much as principles, and they often mistakenly criticize people for their personalities or how they present themselves rather than their actual politics, like in the case of Al Gore and Man Pick, and in doing so, they often come across as conflating the two. And it's a really even-handed and on-point perspective on this really off-discussed topic of South Park's supposed politics and their impact on popular culture, and I think Bernie really hits the nail on the head better than anyone else I've seen try to evaluating what South Park's politics actually are, whether the show even has politics so much as opinions or, like, Again, as Bernie says, like, Madame Trey have principles, but they don't really necessarily understand the political conversation of whatever they're commenting on. But the need they have, the feeling they have to comment on what's topical and timely has kind of led them into corners where they don't really know what they're talking about in their satire sometimes. But I want to close off my shoutouts for this episode by recommending a few new podcasts. And first up is a new podcast from Ellen and Kayla of the Foods Basket Podcast, Let's Stay Together, equivalent exchange of Full Metal Alchemist podcast. Much like with Fruits Basket, they're going through the Full Metal Alchemist manga, a personal favorite of Kayla's, about two chapters at a time every episode. This podcast strays from the Let's Stay Together format somewhat since this is Ellen's first time reading through the manga after only having seen the first anime many years ago. They do a great job discussing the plot of the story and sharing their thoughts on the characters and themes and motifs they're picking up so far, and I'm really excited to listen to them dig into the entire series and hear Ellen's reactions to seeing of the manga story unfolds for the first time. So definitely check out Equivalent Exchange and Let's Stay Together and look forward to our Fruits Basket retrospective we recorded with Ellen and Kayla coming out very soon. And another podcast I want to recommend is the Asinine Lupin Podcast, a Australian-based show dedicated to celebrating the entire Lupin franchise. They've done episodes reviewing all of Part 5 and the Castle of Kagi Lostro and a review of the Foom Conspiracy with friend of the show Joey Weiser. But I particularly want to recommend their latest episode featuring Stan and Strishy of Strishy Movies, uh, where they really dig into what makes the Lupin gang so iconic and really hone in on what drives their characters as people so good at what they do but never can quite get what they want and are always seeking the next big trill to entertain themselves. And the episode goes even deeper into specific relationship dynamics in the show, particularly Lupin and Zenigata, through a comparison and contrast of the part one and part four episodes where Zeni has Lupin imprisoned, but also discussing what the differences between those two takes on the same concepts say about how their relationship and them as characters have changed over the years and they also discuss other really great relationships in the show like the queer subtext in the Lupin and Jigen partnership, the will they won't day of Lupin and Fujiko why Lupin's live action films and most live action adaptations like cartoons tend to fail and miss the point and a ton of other great uh, analytical topics 
and really digging into the characters and teams of Lupin. And the show in general is a really fun listen, full of passionate Lupin fans gushing and discussing the series, so I highly recommend it to any Lupin lover. And there are so many great podcasts, you know, out there to recommend, but not enough time to list them all. So for my last community shout out for this episode, I just want to share a list of anime manga related podcasts that we recommended on Twitter uh, recently in celebration of International Podcast Day. We listed over three dozen shows, many of which we praised highly in our community shout out segments in the past. And we definitely encourage you to peruse through the list and find some new great shows to check out and listen to. We've got a list of general pods, show specific pods, niche focus pods. There's many different types of podcasts out there in the anime manga space, so you're bound to find your next favorite among the many on the list. We'll definitely leave links to uh, to those tweets in the show notes for sure, because there, there's just there's just so many to list. Mm-hmm. But that about does it for our community shout out segment for the episode and the episode as a whole yeah that's uh that's really gonna be about it uh i guess the only other thing i want to mention is uh uh to tune in for the next episode after this where uh we're gonna be we're gonna be talking about a whole lot of cyber pubs that we need to catch up on uh, not not and not just from Shonen Jump. Uh, we have stuff from Manga Mo. We have stuff from Manga Plus, and we even have uh, Sawanabe Zombie from Starfruit Books, uh, a new one shot from Starfruit Books uh, that you can purchase now for only four dollars. And uh, we're going to be talking about that uh, in our group of Cyber Pubs as well. We're going to be talking about a whole lot of stuff uh, next time. Uh, that is the plan anyway, and uh, I can't wait to read through a whole bunch of new manga and talk about it with you guys, let you guys know how we feel about these new series. Um, got a lot of stuff to catch up on. Uh, and uh, for now, that's going to be about it for the show, and I think uh, we're going to start plugging away at our stuff. Lum, please go first. Where can the people find you? You can find me at Lum Ramiyasha on Twitter and as Lum Ramiyasha variety places like an image revelation and A-list. Wherever there's a Lum Ramiyasha, that's where you can find me. You can also read my reviews on allatchcomment.com. We got a lot of books coming in, a lot of reviews going out, so look forward to more on there. And you can also read my review of Moriarty the Patriot on there, the a review of the first volume. So if you want even more thoughts on the manga, so definitely check that out. But we got also out of reviews and works as well. And also, allcashcomment.com is where you can find basically all the related podcasts to this show, including Lum Squad, the Ursiatsura podcast I do with my good friend AC, and Manga Rayside Movies, where Vilor and I review movies. So definitely you can find all that good stuff on there. And if you want to check out uh, the art, if you like the art for this show, you can visit my Instagram at SidArtWorks. All right. And as for me, I'm Colton. You can find me on Twitter at SniperKing323. I also do a few other podcasts on the side uh, besides this show, uh, which you can find links to over at ColtonCorner.wordpress.com. Uh, I have a page dedicated to basically whatever podcast I'm doing at the moment. Uh, most of them you can actually find over at the SSAA Network at SSAAnetwork.com. I, I do a whole lot of shows over there, including One Podcast Prevails. We we mentioned earlier that we're big Conan fans over here. And if you want to hear me talk about Conan in particular, you can listen to me and my friend Doctor uh, talk about the manga in particular as we uh, go over a few chapters every episode. Again, that's One Podcast Prevails. Uh, please go listen to that. I really like recording that show. 
And then, yeah, as for Manga Mavericks and All Comic, uh, you can find every episode of the Manga Mavericks podcast at all-comic.com. That's where we post every episode first. Unless you are a patron of ours at patreon.com slash manga mavericks, where if you sign up for the $2 tier, uh, you'll get access to specific uh, select episodes of the podcast uh, whenever we have them edited before they're meant to be released on the on our main feed. Uh, we, we have a lot of episodes that we haven't even released yet uh, that'll hopefully be out before the end of the year. Uh, but if you, if you can't wait that long, you know, uh, again, at the $2 tier... Uh, we have a bunch of episodes that you can listen to uh, early before anyone else. Uh, or if you want some exclusively new content, uh, you want to sign up for a $5 tier where we upload a new bonus podcast at the end of every month exclusively for our patrons and nobody else. Uh, right now, we are doing a mini series sort of read through thing uh, called the Manga Mavericks Book Club. Uh, where we talk about different manga volume by volume, uh, kind of go more in depth, uh, b- basically through whatever manga we might have talked about on the podcast, but we just want to talk about more of. Uh, right now, we are covering the original Saint Seiya manga from Masami Kuramata. Uh, we are 12 volumes into that. We just released a new episode of that, again, for patrons. Uh, it is my first time reading through Saint Seiya, as well as my friend Doctors. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. And uh, we plan to go on basically until the end of the series. We're going to cover the whole thing. Uh, New episodes of that are being released every month, again, for $5 backers at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. Please support us there if you can. It's really the best way to support us if you really like our show and all the stuff that we do. Uh, Helps keep the light on, etc., etc., um, and then, uh, as for everything else, you could follow all comics specifically at facebook.com slash all.comic or on twitter.com slash allcomic underscore. But if you want to follow manga Mavericks specifically, you want to follow us on Twitter at manga underscore Mavericks or on Tumblr at manga Mavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast. Uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash manga Mavericks. Uh, we have some exclusive content up there, uploaded there every once in a while, as well as excerpts of different episodes of the podcast and whatnot. Again, that's at youtube.com slash manga mavericks. Uh, email us anything at manga mavericks at gmail.com. Uh, do you have any thoughts on any of the news we covered this episode? Uh, do you have any thoughts on Moriarty the Patriot? Uh, please, please let us know what you, th- what you think about that series or j- just tell us about anything you're reading in general. Uh, are there any manga that you want us to cover on the show? Um, you know, if you email us, we will read it on the show. We love getting emails again. That's at manga mavericks at gmail.com. But the most important thing guys is that you subscribe, rate and review us on Apple podcasts or basically wherever podcasts are available. We're available on basically anywhere you can listen to podcasts, including, again, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere. Uh, but anyway, you know, again, like, w- w- when you guys rate and review us, uh, especially on Apple Podcasts, uh, it really helps the visibility of our show, really helps us get out there to more listeners. Uh, and in, in general, we just appreciate any feedback we can get. So, you know, uh, do that if you can. Do that. We, again, uh, even if it's a one-star review, you know, we still appreciate the feedback. Um, but that's going to be about it for the show. We hope you guys enjoyed this episode. This has been episode 135 of the podcast, and we will see you guys next time for episode 136. Bye, guys. Sayonara. Sayonara.